G'day, humans. Well, it is a joy being the centre of a firestorm online. Not. And sort of. Yes. No. Kind of. It, uh, it's been a funny few days where I've been receiving many, 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 many messages on Twitter from people in various shades of red, blue, anger, hate, love, apoplexy about a 25-tweet thread that I published in response to, I suppose, the roiling debate in the United States about whether or not Australia has become a totalitarian dictatorship. I ignored this nonsense for a while, as long as it was limited to Fox News, where Tucker Carlson literally said that this is the end of Australia, and Australia is a dictatorship, uh, totalitarianism, he called it. This has been compounded by misinformation online, where they've, you know, for example, taken images of a quarantine station, Howard Springs, on the outskirts of Darwin, where people who are brought back to Australia on repatriation flights from countries with high COVID numbers are housed for two weeks in quite quite considerable luxury with quite nice food. I have it on good authority. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, certainly not something that you would expect to see in a Western democracy in normal times, but these are not normal times, which is the point I've tried to make repeatedly. Now, I have many criticisms of Australia's response to coronavirus, and if you're a loyal listener, you will have heard me ranting on various bonus episodes of this show and in various intros in frustration about the slow pace of our conversation about evolving to the next stage of coronavirus and appreciating, you know, that we are going to have to open up at some stage. That liberal democracies cannot go on like this indefinitely. I've been frustrated by the slow pace of, uh, of that, of that shift and the expectation among Australians that it's going to be possible to have very, very low COVID case numbers and COVID deaths in perpetuity. Uh, nonetheless, when a foreigner comes parachuting in going, here's what you don't understand about why you guys are doing things wrong, it gets my hackles up a little bit. And I do feel obliged to clarify things. Thus, my Twitter thread, and thus the response that it's gotten in the United States, which I must say has been mostly overwhelmingly positive, and I've received lots and lots of private messages from lots and lots of terribly important people in the US, which makes me feel good about the impact that we can have when we put together a cogent argument that doesn't just extremify things. That being said, I thought it would also be useful to get on to Connor, I had tweeted at Connor when I first saw the article come out and when it was going viral itself. The article is entitled, Australia traded away too much liberty. How long can a democracy maintain emergency restrictions and still call itself a free country? Uh, and I, I texted, uh, I DM'd Connor on Twitter because uh, he happened to follow me for some unknown reason uh, and said, uh, look, there are a couple of errors. Could you correct this bit? To his credit, he did update the article and corrected something about a South Australian app, uh, which I won't go into the details of because you can read about it in the Twitter thread. And then I thought, the hell with it. Why don't we just talk? So I tracked him down. He's currently holidaying in Greece. 
<sighs> such is something that you can do when you come from a country that has completely bungled its coronavirus response and just allows people to wander around infectious. Uh, off he is in the Greek Isles, where I would rather like to be. But alas, I am not permitted. Uh, and uh, I got him on the blower. Look, this is only, this is a pretty short. We really just scratched the surface of all this. But I had wanted to have Connor on this show in a proper long-form conversation about everything because he is a reasonable person. He is a really smart guy. He has interesting and contrarian takes that don't necessarily fall on one side of the ideological spectrum or the other, which, as you know, if you're a regular listener, is what all, the show is all about. So we will have Connor back to talk about anything and everything that interests him on a later episode, but enjoy this little mini amuse-bouche in which Connor and I try to flesh out our agreements and differences on when a lockdown has outlasted its welcome. If you haven't read Connor's piece, I highly encourage you to Google The Atlantic, Australia, traded away too much liberty, and then to go to my Twitter feed, and my Twitter thread is pinned to the top of my Twitter page. If you haven't read those, I'm not sure how particularly insightful or illuminating this conversation will be, but if you have, it will probably be the best episode of anything that you've ever heard. Enjoy my conversation with Connor Friedersdorf. Uh, why are you in Greece? I uh, just wanted to do some uh, travel after I was vaccinated, and I started in Germany, and uh, various events <laughs> led me to Greece, uh, but nothing um, nothing in particular, no huge story I'm working on here or anything like that. Uh, I'm jealous. I mean, that's a great place to be. One of my best buddies lived in Athens. As the Wall Street Journal bureau chief uh, during the financial crisis, he was from, uh, he's a Brit, but he was living in Germany. And then when the financial crisis happened and Greece was going to go insolvent, he got the best plumbest posting you could imagine, which is <laughs> being in Athens. And slowly as the as the focus of, of the world's attention drifted away from Greece's defaulting, he was like, can't I please stay here? And they were like, no, coming back to Germany. <laughs> yeah. Athens. But I went and visited him many times. Yeah, great Athens is great so far. And I was in the islands before and uh, that was great too. So I've... Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. I can't wait to get out of my prison aisle, Connor. <laughs> I'm trying... I'm looking forward to it. Tell, so start by te- can you start by telling people who might not have read your piece what the, the, the gist of your, uh, your thesis is? Yeah, I, I think the gist of my thesis is that, you know, Australia and also New Zealand, but I focused on Australia. Um, the gist of my thesis is that Australia has taken a much different path than other liberal democracies. And geography obviously has something to do with that. What was possible at the beginning of the pandemic for different countries obviously had something to do with it. Um, but nevertheless, we're a long way into this thing now. And I thought it was time to raise the question of how long these very extreme restrictions can be in place uh, before we consider them no longer temporary, which is the justification that has been invoked from the beginning um, it's supposed to make it okay for a liberal democracy to do these things. It's just a temporary emergency. And I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that in a temporary emergency, especially um, a pandemic disease that kills a lot of people, um, 
it does change things and it does justify some things that wouldn't otherwise be justified. Um, but I start to worry about the potential permanence of these things um, as this drags on longer and longer and as it seems as though the coronavirus will be endemic rather than something that we can uh, simply get rid of. And I think that so it's 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 probably worth it's probably worth at this point our being specific about the kinds of categories of things that we're worried about uh, in the sense that one criticism that I got from my Twitter thread in response to your piece was from a lot of Australians who are in smaller states where there are no lockdowns. I mean, the states are the, the state borders are closed and nobody can come from New South Wales or Victoria, which are the two most populous states. And for non non Australian non Australians, uh, the 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 whole lockdowns and policing and health and everything is handled at a state. Uh, level in Australia. Australia is a federation like the United States. So most of the, almost all of this stuff is a, is a state responsibility. So in the two most populous states, New South Wales and Victoria, where Sydney and Melbourne are located respectively, uh, we are in lockdown facing uh, large numbers of cases in New South Wales. But I got a lot of emails, Connor, from people in WA who were saying, like, speak for yourselves about illiberalism we here's a photo of us like in Fremantle on the beach. Uh, we're having brunch. Everyone's outside. There are zero cases. There's always been zero cases and we're having a great time. The only thing we can't do is leave without coming, without knowing that we're going to have to spend two weeks in quarantine on the way back. And that's a small price to pay for actually living a real practical day-to-day freedom in a way that nobody else in the world really can. And it's probably worth keeping that, uh, dis- distinct from images of heavy-handed police arresting people for protesting for their freedoms or, you know, asking for people's ID in Melbourne if they're out after 9pm because there's a curfew and those kinds of daily indignities and and illiberal interactions between the state and the individual that are necessary during a lockdown. Yeah, it, it's absolutely the case that, you know, Australia is a big country and people are having very different experiences of these restrictions, both because of differences in the state that they live in and the actual restrictions themselves, and also because of the circumstances of their own lives. If you're an overworked professional with young kids at home, uh, a lockdown and working from home uh, could be a stress reliever because you don't have a long commute. And if you have a partner abroad, um, the restriction of not leaving the country or be able to get in the country can be, um, you know, heartrending. And, and so I think, as is often the case with uh, civil liberties abrogations, they fall very unevenly on different kinds of people. And in the email mixes that I got as a response to the article, I heard from many people who are understandably happy that they um, can move about with more freedom in some respects than people in other countries because the coronavirus just isn't present near them or, or wasn't until the rise of the Delta variant. And uh, other people who um, have had just awful circumstances because their lives or their careers were more tied to interstate travel or to travel abroad and they have a partner or a parent or a funeral or a wedding that they missed – and, um, you know, I think that class has also been a big factor, as I understand it, in how the lockdown has been enforced in different neighborhoods and kinds of housing in Australia. 
Definitely. And I mean, but I mean, you know, I, uh, many of these criticisms, I think, are just a consequence of chaos and pandemonium and a pandemic. The, the pandemic has hit poor people in the States worse than it's hit rich people. That is the nature of inequality. Uh, it's the nature of policing that the police are generally more aggressive towards poor people and people of color than they tend to be of wealthy white people. And that's probably a reality in the enforcement of the lockdowns as well here. Uh, what I think Australians are, are frustrated by and what I was... Well, th- there are two things. I mean, in some respects, you're, you've become the target for Australians' ire against the general criticism of uh, what they regard as being a broadly successful policy with a finite time period. Massively, massively fewer COVID deaths, even a better economy than other places that didn't manage the pandemic so aggressively for the obvious reason that in a place like Sydney, you have a nine-week lockdown when the pandemic starts and then you have 13 months of living normal life instead of having everybody hunker inside, uh, not wanting to go to a cafe and meet up with friends even if they're allowed to because they don't want to get really sick for two weeks. Um, the, but the alongside your piece, there's been a tremendous amount of misinformation in the States that I think people feel like some of your piece played into the the concern that qu- that quarantine housing is going to be turned into concentration camps. Not that you said that, but that that is a meme that's floating around in the states. And the idea, you know, I mean, Tucker Carlson literally said, "This is the end of Australia. This is totalitarianism," which is not only offensive; it's ludicrously deranged. And as a country tries to experiment with alternatives to the extreme lockdown that we currently have and the extreme border measures that are in place, there are going to be trials of things like this South Australian app, for example, which you can put an Orwellian spin on it. And I certainly wouldn't want to be forced to use an app that requires me to tell the police where I am at 15 minutes notice, which is what this does. But if 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 I was choosing to come into this COVID-free jurisdiction from a high COVID country and my alternative was I can either quarantine for two weeks in an airport Marriott or I can download an app and stay at home but the app will spy on me I mean neither is great but the latter is better than the former (laughs) and both are probably preferable to having a runaway pandemic yeah so um a few thoughts in response to all that um one I, I certainly understand the feeling of um frustration with misinformation being spread about the country. And I think that uh, as on so many issues, Tucker Carlson has done that, as have many others. Um, I, I have also gotten a lot of responses that are something to the effect of, uh, well, you Americans do this and that wrong, uh, to which I would say that's absolutely correct. America has done all sorts of things wrong, <laughs> all sorts of things wrong. In and the realm of irrelevant c- to the question at hand. Right. You know, in the realm of civil liberties, in the realm of the pandemic, um, you know, th- this is a big earth shattering event. And I think you could dig into any country and have um, important questions to raise and criticism to levy about its response. And um, th- this perhaps ties into the app that we're talking about. I, of course, agree that um, it-, it is better than certain alternatives from the perspective of an individual traveler. Um, but when I step back and think about this as a global emergency, you know, my touchstone for so much of this is the war on terrorism and watching the way that 
um, it, it can act as a ratchet, you know, the kinds of airport security things that uh, didn't happen for the first half of my life and then were imposed after 9-11 that are still with us, right? Uh, and, and that I would argue are unnecessary, but were just put in place and never went away. Um, when it comes to surveillance, there was a, an ingenious thing that they developed in Iraq when they were trying to stop insurgents from putting roadside bombs on the side of the road. And they would fly fixed wing airplanes above all of a whole city like Mosul or Baghdad. And then when an, an insurgent IED went off on the side of the road, they would kind of wind back the high res video and they would figure out, okay, well, who planted that there? And let's rewind the tape and track them all the way back. And what house were they in? And they would identify insurgents that way. And it saved a lot of uh, American servicemen and allied servicemen, perhaps Australian servicemen. Um, it, now that same fixed wing aircraft technology is being flown over American cities in a kind of Orwellian um attempt to solve crime and effectively it is surveilling whole cities mm. of people for um all daylight hours right and so you could identify all sorts of things like where opposition politicians are going and and just the private things people are doing in their lives uh, technology that's introduced in emergencies gets repurposed in other ways and and when i say orwellian i'm thinking of future uses as much as i am thinking of the present narrow circumstance that is only as i acknowledged in the article just being tested right now not even um you know rolled out completely um i think that it's important to not be so defensive that we don't think about the um logic and the technologies that we're introducing now and how it's going to play out down the road. And with respect to the pandemic in particular, um, if the logic is we're going to get to a realistic threshold of vaccination relatively soon, and then we're going to end all of this, that's one thing. If the logic is um, such that another variant comes along that escapes the vaccine, and this goes on for another two years, that's quite another thing. And I pose this. Yeah, and I think yeah, that uh, I, I think I think that what's what's actually happening in part of the defensiveness that you're that you're that you're seeing amongst Australians is the fact that this is a very active debate here. Like the 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 conversation between those two poles. I mean, I'm about to go on Australian television right now and argue essentially articulate your point in, in a way because we're talking about American misinformation about Australia, about Australia, not specifically about you, but about, um, about Fox News and the other stuff that's floating around out there. And the point that I will make is that it's incumbent upon all, of Australia, all Australians to make sure that we don't uh, vindicate the worst fears of America's most hysterical critics by failing to, uh, you know, to do what we've promised to do. And you're right that there are elements in Australian society who, especially in the, the smaller states, who I think would take every opportunity to kick the can down the road and to shift the goalposts. And I mean, these people who are sending me photos of how fabulous it is to be having brunch by the beach in Western Australia, what incentive does any West Australian politician have to drag people out of that scenario and start spreading a pathogen around in their community simply so that the small minority of people who want to be able to travel abroad more than they want to be able to get brunch every weekend freely without worrying about getting sick get to do so. And it's going to take a certain amount of spine, 
But the resentment from Australia towards the criticism from America is it sounds tin-eared to the existence of this de- debate. It's like we're not – the assumption seems to be that we somehow sort of just blundered into this. On the second point – on so rather your first point about the repurposing of technology, my sense about that is – as a sort of gut-level, fairly civil libertarian person myself, there are so many egregious ways in which governments intrude on our lives. And not to engage in whataboutism again, but it's a relevant point to make, that America is usually so bad at this. I mean, after 9-11, the whole liquids thing. Like, when I fly domestically in Australia, there is no liquids ban. I don't take my shoes off. I don't have to show my ID to go through security. I can join my parents at the gate and, and wave, wave them goodbye airside at an airport in Australia. And Australia is just as much of a target as other Western countries are. It's right next to Indonesia, which has a large problem with jihadism and the Bali bombings were targeted at, at Australians. Like the, it, it strikes it strikes Australia, many Australians as weird that Americans would be uniquely concerned about us playing around with ways of trying to ensure that we don't face the same calamity that the rest of the world has from COVID because Americans are worried that we might misuse the apps that we're creating. I mean, apps are a dime a dozen. Apps are easy to create. If, if a totalitarian dictatorship in the future wants to create an app that spies on us, then they're going to do so. I don't think they need a pandemic. And if there was ever a good reason to temporarily be spied on by a government, ensuring that, you know, teeming hordes of people aren't coming in from abroad and spreading a brand new novel virus into your community after you've just spent 18 months beating it back would be a pretty good reason to take that risk, a much better reason to take that risk than everything the TSA is doing. So, so I, I guess one, one point I want to emphasize, um, I, I would encourage people if they're on Twitter to go and find the many responses that I've posted from different Australians who've emailed about my article um, because the people who are critical of the article often are framing their response in terms of, um, well, why would you, an American, be concerned about us in Australia um, you know, doing these sorts of things and, and, and what about this and that in America? And, or I wish you would have talked to, um, more Australians. And I actually did talk to a fair number of Australians before I published the piece, though I didn't quote anyone. Uh, but I think that the, um, the thread of responses will show that these are positions that are certain. My position is not a majority position in Australia. There's certainly many Australians who share my concerns and position. And, uh, I think that they're a bit, overwhelmed at the moment because it seems like it's about 75-25 in, in, in the politics of this. Um, but nothing that I said in the piece is um, a concern that people in Australia haven't articulated. Civil liberties groups in Australia have raised concerns about yeah, this I mean, very same um, me, surveillance me technology. Too. And yeah, and, and, and your voice um, in this too. And so, uh, you know, I, I get that... Um, I'm an outsider writing a critical article about a country and there's going to be a certain amount of blowback that comes with that and that's fine. Um, but, uh, I think it's nevertheless important to, um, grapple with these questions in a way that, um, that validates the premise that things could go too far and that it would be understandable in some ways if they did, because this virus is a very scary thing and it's going to be a very difficult thing for a country that was in the mindset of eradicating it completely to accept a degree of vaccine breakthrough and spread and death 
that has heretofore been um, stopped with very harsh restrictions. And when the logic changes, mm. because vaccines are available to everyone or past a certain threshold, um, you know, I think it, it, it is very important to shift policies at that point uh, for kind of airy-fairy civil libertarian reasons. Uh, I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are against it and who point to the deaths that are just unfortunately going to increase when it happens as reason to ex- yep. extend it longer and longer. And and I sympathize with them no, you're because right. the deaths that, are going to be happen. terrible. I mean, the, 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 completely. I mean, the only I think you I think I would have less of a, an issue with your criticism. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that the, the the premier of the most populous state, who's like the governor, and also the prime minister, have been repeatedly adamant, admittedly only over really the past three or four weeks, so it may have, it may post date when you were writing the piece, but um, that that at seventy to eighty percent vaccination, which we will get to, and which will effectively mean that everybody who wants a vaccine has had a vaccine in New South Wales, will that we will open up come hell or high water because everyone's so fed up with the lockdown. In a weird way, it's actually been in some ways beneficial. I don't want to say this because, you know, people have died and it sounds tactless, but it's been somewhat beneficial to the politics of this in New South Wales, the biggest state, in the sense that we haven't been forced to make the decision ourselves. Like, COVID is here. There are 1,200 to 1,500 new cases a day, which may not sound like a lot in the American context, but given that that completely overwhelms contact traces and then you start to get off to the races into an uncontrolled pandemic, that's not something that we've seen before. So it's a race against time to vaccinate. And the fact that we can't put the genie back in the bottle actually means that we are being forced to reckon with a decision that you would have to be an enormously brave leader to take voluntarily in the absence of any cases. Yeah. I mean, as you say, that like who, who would choose to introduce a pathogen um, to a community? I just want to also emphasize to American listeners, it's important, and I say this in my Twitter thread, to remember that Australia never had a big first wave of COVID casualties. So the bemusement that non-Australians exhibit when they say, how can Australians be so panicky about a mere 1,500 new cases a day is because we have no natural immunity. There is no, you know, nobody's caught it and then gotten better, really, because there have been so few cases. We don't, we're not vaccinated enough yet. And our systems and our infrastructure and our hospitals and so on aren't set up the way that they currently are in Europe and the United States to have learned to accept the large numbers of coronavirus, of COVID cases that have been coming in. This is all new, which the way to think about Australia then is to sort of time shift us 15 months into the past. And again, I'm saying Australia, I should be saying New South Wales. Time shift us 15 months into the past. And if it seems like we're being extreme, we're responding to something, you know, it's not like it's not like if we did open up, we would just become like the US is. We wouldn't. We'd become like the US was in March of 2020. Yeah. And and of course, we hope that the vaccines help uh, a ton to prevent that. The I guess the in turn, the thing I would ask um, some of the Australian critics of the piece um, to think about um, is, um, well, I think that it's Obviously, a very powerful defense of the Australian approach that your deaths have been so much lower per capita so far. And I really hope that they um, 
that they stay that way as things open up. Um, there are certain aspects of the response, like the prohibition on merely leaving the country, that strike me as um, not very well justified by um, the idea of preventing deaths. Um, because when you're preventing people from coming in at the same time, if you're not just obvious, you know, automatically allowing everyone abroad to come back, um, the case for restricting people from leaving as a necessary part of fighting COVID becomes much weaker. And I would point to that as one example that is a very extreme restriction that, as I point out in the piece, we usually associate with um, pretty terrible regimes. And it seems to me that it was not necessary to have the success that Australia had against COVID and that although not that many people were affected by the abrogation on their liberties. Those who were affected, it was a very severe um, restriction and a very harsh thing in, in some of the people's lives who were affected. I should also, I should just, I should just clarify, Connor, that there, there is a bit of a, a mythology around that rule in the sense that you can leave with an ex now. Of course, it's nasty to have to apply to the government for something that should be a universal human right. But you can leave with an exemption, and the easiest way to get an exemption is to is to promise that you'll stay away for more than ninety days. And if you're going to stay away for more than ninety days, then the government gives you an exemption quite readily. And I know many people who've travelled for less than ninety days if they can prove a compelling business reason to go and so on. So exemptions are being granted. People are coming and going. It's just that uh, the, the, they're not going to give you an exemption. I mean, the purpose is to so, so that people won't go on a holiday to New Zealand and then come back one week later and take up a valuable spot in hotel quarantine that could have been given to, to an Australian who's, who wants to be repatriated from abroad, abroad permanently. So I understand the rationale. I also hate that policy because uh, it's a pain in the ass to me specifically. I'm married to an American. I have American dual citizen kids. I want to be able to travel as soon as we can. But to be honest, we would probably get an exemption, Touchwood. The problem for us would be the hotel quarantine coming back. And the real human rights calamity from my point of view is the fact that the government has never bothered to find an orderly way to bring Australians home. Like they've poured so much money into essentially welfare to keep us all chugging along during lockdowns. And they haven't diverted any of that to a systematic way to allow the tens of thousands of Australians to to come back without having to have be, without being gouged tens of thousands of dollars by airlines who are only allowed to bring back in. I mean, at the moment, the cap is so low that I think it's fewer than 500 people a day are allowed into the country, a country of 25 million people and fewer than 500 people a day are allowed back. That's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but then this brings us also, Connor, to, but I think, I mean, I, I'm torn between like that strictness is what had allowed us to be so free in terms of our daily lives. Like there are two different columns of concern here. One is the, the, the daily limitations on freedom that come with a lockdown, but the lockdown gets prevented by the draconian border closures. Right. You I, know what I mean? Like that's almost a trade-off worth making in my book. Well, it's certainly baked into the policy. I think that the critique that I'm not persuaded by that some Americans have put forth is the one you mentioned earlier about, well, you only have this small number of cases and so why are you locking down? Um, the whole logic of the policy is that you can only prevent the spread um, 
if you lock down with very few cases and the rest of the world has <laughs> shown in just about every other country that that's the case. And right, so I think exactly. That, I think that that and lockdowns is, don't work once you've got lots of cases. Right, yeah. So I think that that assumption of, of the Australian government is validated. Um, I, I think that the, um, yeah, I, I think the actual failing, and, and this is a failure of every Western country in my book, by the way, uh, with the possible exception of Israel, is that um, there just wasn't enough urgency on the part of every wealthy government to spend more to get um, vaccine options faster. And this is probably the place where the United States performed best by securing, um, you know, supplies of multiple vaccines. Um, it seems to me that if other Western governments would have put a correct price on the value of the liberty of their citizens, they would have both um, made bets on more vaccine candidates early, not knowing which one was going to work out, and also would have just invested more in getting those doses out quickly. Um, to me, that's when the militaries of these countries should have been rolled out to be getting shots into arms just literally like 24 hours a day as fast as possible. Mm. Do you think there's permanent damage done to Australia's, to the way that people think about Australia in America? No, I think that it depends entirely on what happens going forward. I think that if this ends um, on the schedule, on the optimistic schedule that you've been talking about, then uh, no, I don't think that there will be um, an, an enduring sense that Australia has changed. And that's the outcome that I hope for, and maybe even that I would bet on, despite the, the concerns that I have talked about. You know, I um, <laughs> there are people I love in Australia. I'm excited to visit them, and I won't worry that I'm coming to um, a police state once I'm allowed back in, uh, or, or I wouldn't come. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Uh, Connor, thanks for thanks for speaking with us. I'll get you on the podcast properly in a few months, and we can talk about all kinds of things that I'm interested in. But I just wanted to to pick your brain about this while it's going going viral. It's good to good to talk to you. Enjoy Greece and enjoy being able to travel. I look forward to to that day, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yes, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I appreciate the engagement on Twitter, and uh, yeah, I look forward to going on the podcast. Mm-hmm. 